You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. We got a lot to cover today, so let's jump in. We're going to go through Genesis 19. Last week, we talked about the journey to Sodom and Gomorrah, which took us into a lot of interesting conversations. But today, we are going to continue through uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story all the way to the end, uh, even past it to when Lot leaves for uh, a new town. So, uh, yeah, we've got a lot of cover. Uh, we may have to reread our passage uh, twice just to kind of really settle down with the information. But let's remind ourselves of where we're heading. So if we were to go back to Genesis 13, we would see that that was where our story of Sodom and Gomorrah actually started. Uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast episode on that topic if you'd like. Um, but back in Genesis 13... We had Abraham uh, tell Lot, like, look, our our uh, we have so much property and people, like, they're starting to fight with one another about where the boundary lines are and things like that. Let's just go ahead and separate. You go one way, I'll go another. So what, that's what they do. Uh, and Abram, or Abraham, as we now call him, settles in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and it says, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So we already know that Sodom and Gomorrah is a wicked place, and here you have, um, here you have Lot just kind of tiptoeing over there, right? He moved his tent as far as Sodom. But in today's passage, which we're about to jump into, what we find out is like he now lives there. <laughs> he hasn't just pitched his tent as far as he is seems to be a resident of the Sodom and Gomorrah um area and we might see even a bit more as we dive into the language uh that the Bible uses to describe this event with. So, for starters, before we really get going here, um Let's read Genesis 19, and when we're done with that, we're going to come back and just revisit all of the language here that's trying to explain to us the negativity of this place. Because I know that people struggle with, you know, uh, divine judgment. Uh, I, I do the same. I, it's been a topic that I've studied for quite some time. Um, but I think once we sit back in that, we, we just rest with just how... Um, how fallen this place is, we'll start to see it in the light that the Bible is actually trying to paint for us, which a lot of times we miss because we're just unfamiliar with the language that, that it's using. So, like I said, let's read Genesis 19 all the way through, and then we're going to come back and dissect it piece by piece as to what's really going on here. So, before I give inflections on things, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, oh, final thing before we get in. Last week, three angels, well, one of them wasn't an angel. One of them was God, or <laughs> as we've seen in past episodes, the angel of the Lord, which uh, seems to play the part of God all throughout the Old Testament. So you have three angels or three divine beings show up. Um, 
suddenly God is not there, but the other two angels, or we imagine that God's not there because now there's only two angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit, but um, three angels show up, talk to Abraham. One of them's God. Now there's only two angels, and those two angels are entering Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or... Anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of the place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to him, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. 
Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and, and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up ahead of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she laid down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And Q. All right. There's a lot there. And uh, when you just kind of read it straight through, uh, you know, you're... You, you kind of soak in a lot more than just uh, being in children's church and quickly hearing the the tale of Sodom and Gomorrah, which always kind of surprises me that we even tell that story in children's church because it's, uh, it's very dark. So all that being said, now that we've kind of uh, had a moment to read this, process it, maybe your mind was even going while we were going through it because uh, you've been listening to the podcast and things are just popping in your mind. Whatever the case may be, let's take a moment, just kind of sit with the story, and then let's start, uh, let's start dissecting it. Drop. Before we dive too deep into Genesis 19 uh, to completely survey some of the stuff that they talk about in Genesis 19, let's go ahead and just remember from last week uh, that the prophets had more to say about Sodom and Gomorrah than just the issue of things like homosexuality. Actually, I think the story that we looked over today has a lot to say about all kinds of issues, homosexuality being one of them, sure. Uh, but uh, when God speaks out of the prophets in places like Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50, God has a laundry list of other things that he was upset about with Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So this is what uh, that verse says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So in this passage right here, you got to understand like, you know, when God reflects on the judgment that he brought on Sodom and Gomorrah through his prophet Ezekiel, when he reflects through his prophet, some of the stuff that he's talking about is not stuff that generally comes to our mind. So we're not just thinking homosexuality here. We're thinking of like uh, a more uh, full corruptness in all kinds of ways. So I just want to make sure that we have that on the forefront of our mind. I think we will see a little bit of what Ezekiel was saying as we dive a little deeper into Genesis 19. Uh, but I just want to widen the scope as to like how twisted this place has become. So first thing that we can notice is in Genesis 19, 1, two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now, I should probably clarify this a little bit. Last week, we saw the three angels show up, right? There's two angels, and then one of them was Yahweh himself. One of these angels was God. It was strange, but that was the case that we found in that passage. Uh, what's interesting now is that there's only two angels, and those two angels throughout Genesis 19, just to kind of make it confusing, sometimes they're going to be angels, sometimes they're going to be men. Now, the word angels actually just means messenger in Hebrew, so some who don't like the supernatural aspect would just be like, ah, oh, these, these are just two messengers from God going to Sodom and Gomorrah. But that doesn't line up with the rest of the story, right? First off, because in Genesis 18, we saw God and two angels just walking around, though they could be mistaken for just normal human beings. This is actually why in the New Testament you find a verse that says, some have entertained angels unaware. Right? You know that Newsboys song? Entertaining angels by the light of my TV screen. That, that, if you grew up with CCM like me, that, that song comes to mind. That's based on a reference in Hebrews 13.2 where it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Uh, and the idea right there is actually pointing back to Abraham, uh, where Abraham entertains these angels, but they look like men, and it maybe takes a moment for him to realize that they are not just uh, human beings. These are divine beings. So that being said, the Bible is pretty clear at this point that when we're talking about angels entering Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not just uh, it's not just human being messengers, but these are divine being messengers who have taken on the form of something that looks like human being in a sense that you otherwise can't make out the difference. Okay, so with that being said, um, let's return to Genesis 19.1 because we had two angels and Yahweh walking around. Now we just have the two angels, almost as though... You know, there might be this implication like Sodom and Gomorrah might be like too too corrupt of a place for the one and only holy God to be marked as walking through there. Or maybe like the weight of where this story is going to end is just too sacrilegious to even bring God into where this whole narrative is going to, to run. So 
we would presume that of these two angels, Yahweh is one of them who is not present as he was in Genesis 18. So that already kind of like catches us, catches our minds like, where did God go? Why is there only two angels now? And the assumptions we might possibly make, again, this place is too unsacred for, for God to be. Okay, so the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, this 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 description right here is quite interesting because you'll remember Lot started moving and pitching his tent as far as Sodom, and now he's actually in Sodom, but not only in it, he's sitting at the gate. And this catches uh, commentaries off guard uh, because like this... This right here at the gate, like this could be a civic or community center. Uh, citizens often did business by the gate. So we might be thinking in that way. Oh, they're just coming to town and now they find him kind of in the city. Um, but another way to take it is that he might actually be a leader in Sodom and Gomorrah, which really kind of like blows your mind because Sodom and Gomorrah is like this really bad place, right? And now it seems like a lot has not only tiptoed towards it, but he may be a leader there uh, because the expression sitting in the city's gateway uh, can mean that that Lot is performing some kind of a judicial function because it, it is an idiom to sit in a gateway. So like, for example, Second uh, Samuel 19, 8, then the king arose and took his seat in the gate and the people were all told behold the king is sitting in the gate and all the people came before the king so like right there you have this kind of like judicial function this leader taking on a, a legal uh position at the gate so it can be an idiom for that jeremiah 26 10 when the officials of judah heard these things they came up from the king's house to the house of the lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. And you also see Jeremiah kind of use this idiom a few other times. So that being said, are we supposed to look at, at Lot as like, <laughs> you know, a, a specific kind of like leader or someone who has like authority in this town or as a judge of sorts? Because now we're, we're starting to kind of see a different perspective of Lot just in that explanation here. He, he, he's really kind of become integrated in the community if that is the case. So, uh, yeah. So while this could be like a public square, it also was a place where the elders could, could be, uh, and where public meetings could be held. Legal disputes could, uh, uh, come into, to being. Um, and it also shows us again, lot could have been fairly influential in this community. So uh, while I'm working with a few different commentaries, one of the big ones I'm going to be working with throughout this is Gordon J. Winham's uh, uh, Volume 2 commentary in the World Biblical Commentary. So if you want to go a little deeper beyond what I'm saying, uh, that's one of the big ones that I'm going to be working with on this particular episode. All right, so here's Lot. He's perhaps got some kind of authority in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's continue. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. All right, now here's a big thing that we need to hit on because this is not the way that we think. 
today, when we see a stranger or someone homeless or someone, you know, struggling with something, we are very cautious to give them a place to stay. Uh, by all means, if someone were to knock on our door in the middle of the night and say, hi, my car broke down, a lot of us would lock our door, not answer it, maybe even call the police on these people because we live in this perpetual state of anxiety that everyone's telling a story in which, you know, it's a lie and they're actually going to kill us or you know, break into our house and do something awful uh, because we've all either heard stories like that or watched too many movies, right? So by all means, like taking a stranger into your house is not something that crosses our mind as, as even a smart thing to do today. We are all afraid of things like that. But in ancient times, this was huge. Hospitality was a big deal all throughout the Bible. In fact, just remember Hebrews 13 too. It's actually uh, the writer of Hebrews is telling us to be hospitable in this way. What do you say? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So the Bible actually invites us to be hospitable. In fact, if you'll remember from last week's podcast, um, we took a quote from the Talmud that said, hospitality to wayfarers is greater than welcoming the divine presence. So almost this idea like, you know, loving your neighbor, even the stranger, hospitality, this can be a way of, of worshiping God. So in ancient times, just even just from hearing that quote, it's so counter from the way that we would almost think of, of taking someone in. In ancient times, you see that hospitality was a huge deal. And so here is Lot stepping up to be hospitable and try to take care of these two strangers who have just entered his town. So here we see uh, that Lot is going with the customs of his time and trying to provide a place for for the people around him to to stay, which kind of paints him in a, a nicer light. But here's where things get very curious, okay? So if it's commonplace to want to offer a place to stay, uh, why does the story continue like this? Uh, Lot says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. See, this this is where things get weird, right? I mean, okay, so Lot's done his part. He's invited strangers to hospitably come to his house and spend the night. But the strangers say no. They reject it. First off, you know, Lot, in a sense, has just offered a gift of sorts. So, like, think of if you, you gave someone this really nice gift that you've you've got for them and they rejected it. Like, first off, that's kind of insulting and that uh, goes against the, the uh, it goes against, uh, you know, just politeness to some extent. So... <laughs> So here are these angels like, nah, we're not going to come to your house. And, and that causes you first to stop and be like, why would they not go to his house? Are they afraid of Lot? Or maybe they just planned on kind of investigating the city all night. We could go that direction. Uh, but for some reason, uh, they have rejected 
Lot's invitation to stay at his house, which is probably a slap in the face. But Lot's done his due diligence. He's invited. Here's where things continue to get weirder. He's, it says he pressed them strongly. He pressed them strongly. They've already said no. They're just going to spend the night in the town square, which I don't know if that's like the streets or something. But now he's pressing them strongly. Like, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just a cultural thing for me. If I invited someone into my house for the night and they said no, and maybe I tried a second time or a third time, eventually I'm just going to be like, well, it's going to be a lot of work for me. I got to make them food. I got to take care of them, serve them, prepare my house, all that. Well, they don't want to come. Fine. It's easier for me. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, after one request, I might be like, all right, that's cool. You don't have to come. But instead, Locke keeps pressing them strongly, which makes you wonder, like, does he anticipate that there is a threat to these people who are visiting his town? Almost like, dude, you got to come inside, man. I, I, the last thing I need to hear is that these strangers came to our town and something horrible happened to them because they were out on our streets at night, which I'm expecting could very well happen. Like, that might be reading into it a bit much. But the Bible almost invites us to ask the question, why do the angels reject the custom of staying with him? Because they just accepted Abraham's custom to stay with him for a little bit. Why are they rejecting Lot? Are they afraid of him or something else? And then uh, why is Lot so urgently pressing them to stay with him? There's just a lot of questions that, that are left to ask here. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So unleavened bread, obviously, is not leavened, uh, which would make sense that this would be what you're eating at such a last minute. It's already kind of evening, right? The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, so it's late. You don't have time for the bread to rise, so you make unleavened bread. They eat. And then the story continues. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Uh, I want to pause there just for a brief moment and say this is a little over-exaggerated, I, I imagine, because we're going to see in a minute, um, we are going to see in a minute that... Uh, a lot goes to his son-in-laws and talks to them and invites them to leave, which means his son-in-laws would have been some of the men in the town, yet they are not present um, in, in this mob. So there probably is some over-exaggerating, but the point nonetheless is very clear. The Bible is painting, look, this town is very fallen and very depraved. Pretty much everyone is showing up. Uh, and it, it paints a picture just trying to get you to think of all of the men of the city, uh, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So even if that is over-exaggeration, the, the picture the Bible's painting is not necessarily over-exaggerated as far as trying to capture the moral tone of the city, especially because if we remember back to last week's passage, right, Abraham was like, if you just find a few righteous people, will you not destroy it? And God's like, okay, if I can find 10 righteous people, at the very least, I, I will not destroy it. 
But here in this particular verse, we are seeing the Bible like trying to trying to communicate there were no righteous people found. Even at this point, we're kind of questioning a little bit of of Lot's character. Is he righteous? Is he not righteous? You know, that that's kind of going through our mind as a question. Okay, uh, let's take a break and move into the next uh, bigger topic that we need to hop into next. So be thinking over this as we get ready for that. Picking up where we left off is uh, these men are all around Lot's house trying to get um, him to bring out their visitors. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. All right. That word right there might catch your attention if you've been following the podcast. They want to get to know them. Uh, That right there is a language of intimacy right? Um, Sexual intimacy, to be exact. It's a euphemism used throughout the Bible. Sometimes the Bible doesn't quite get into uh, full descriptions of sexuality with vulgar tone. Instead, it often uses euphemisms to talk about uh, sex and sexual body parts and, and all kinds of things like that. So euphemisms are are very normal. That being said, when we see this word, we want to get to know them. Most of us have the idea coming to mind that we are using this word in a sexual kind of way. Now, just because this word is a euphemism does not mean it is always a euphemism. There are other passages in the Bible where to get to know someone is not necessarily sexual in nature. Uh, But in this particular case... The rest of the story is screaming overtones of sexuality to us. So here's here's what some have done, though. Uh, it seems that they have wanted to strip the idea that this story is getting into um, the topic of homosexuality. They want to strip that out of the passage. So what they do instead is they add in um, different interpretations of this word no. So, for example, one of the ways in which people have used this passage in the past uh, or have have interpreted interpreted it more in recent times is to say that people thought the people of the town thought these two angels that came into town these two men so they thought they were were maybe spies who were out to try to um, check in on them or or something like that something that they they were uncomfortable with so they all came around the house knocked on the door and then wanted them, wanted Lot to bring them out so that they could get to know them. You know, like, what's your name? Why are you here? That kind of stuff. <laughs> but that doesn't line up well with the, the way that the rest of this story goes, right? Because if you want to say that, then it gets more confusing when pretty much the next thing that happens is Lot is like, oh, no, 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 don't get to know them, get to know my daughters. Uh, they're virgins. Like, 
why is why is that coming up in conversation? You know, like it's just it kind of throws the whole thing for a loop. Now, they would continue to give explanations as to what they mean when they say all these things and kind of paint a whole picture for uh, a completely different understanding of this passage. But I think when we just read it point blank, like we all get the tone. All these men have surrounded the house and they would like to rape the new guys inside. But instead, we see Lot, he's like, no, just rape my daughters instead. Like, this is a messed up story. And it makes us uncomfortable today uh, because, uh, you know, there's so much talk on homosexuality and all that, that nobody wants anything in the Bible to phrase it in a negative light. But we just have to face uh, the facts that the Bible, when it talks about uh, uh, homosexuality in any sense, there's always this negative connotation towards it in the Bible. And the reason that it is there is because uh, this understanding that the way in which God had created the world, that was the right way in which he created it, that God didn't mess up when he made things. And you see Jesus later, of course, when he's talking about divorce, uh, the Pharisees are like, well, can, can you get divorced? And he's like, look, did God make divorce? No, Moses made divorce. The way that God set things up was one man, one woman together for life. That right there is the order in which God has created, so that is the order in which we are to live up to. And I've talked about this before, but uh, Genesis is not just about, uh, you know, the, the creation of the world. That's not the only theme that's going on here is a, a fight between literalistic and, and, and evolutionistic creation. In fact, anyone from ancient times would have understood, like, this is a story about God's order. This is the way in which he set it up. Uh, this is the uh, story showing us that human beings were kind of the peak of creation, uh, to rule over creation, and that there were other animals that fell under them. Uh, so if human beings kind of have, like, this ruling glory, then other animals might fall under a different kind of glory, which seems to be language that Paul's use. Paul uses later about things having their own glory, things like that. Uh, but there's this understanding all throughout the Bible that wisdom is God, and, and that God's wisdom is not to be altered or changed or what God is doing now in the new creation of Christ is not going to do away with the way in which he created things originally, but it's going to capitalize upon it. It's going to make it newer and better than it's ever been, but it's not just going to destroy it because God didn't mess up the first time. You know, like the new Eden that's coming is just going to be the old Eden, if you will, on crack is <laughs> that's probably not the best way to say it. Uh, but the new Eden that's coming down the road will be so much better than the way in which God originally made it. But it's not to say that the way in which God originally made it was wrong or that he messed up or did anything uh, that he's now got to reverse what he originally did. Rather, he's just got to capitalize upon it and make it even better in, in the new world that he's creating. So with that being said, um, order in the Bible is a really big deal uh, because that's how creation stories went. It was about your gods establishing order. And if we believe that there's only one God and that God is Yahweh and the way in which he established order was a male and a female coming together, 
then that would mean anything outside of that would be anti-order, would be chaos, would be anti-creation, right? So, uh, and this doesn't just get into the homosexuality issue, okay? It gets into all kinds of other uh, issues, issues like divorce, because you've got Jesus saying, like, it's just, you know, one man, one woman. If you guys get divorced, God still sees you as married to the person that you were married to before. Like, right there, Jesus is talking about, based on the way God created order, it only works one way. And if you continue throughout these conversations, you get into more areas of it where like, okay, so it's not just a divorce issue. It's also a polygamy issue. God did not set up the world in a way where it was like one man and five women or one woman and five men. Instead, that is looked as a like chaos of God's original order. It's disorder. And the same would be true about something like homosexuality. It wasn't created man and man or woman and woman. Instead, it was created man and woman. And so part of the reason that I think uh, you're seeing this theme pop up, I'm not, okay, so this theme is here in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not being painted into it later. Uh, But... I think one of the important themes behind this in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is you're to see like it is chaos. It's outside of of God's original plan. Um, it's it's something that does not match with the order in which God has established. Now, Abraham doesn't particularly match the order in which God has established either, right? He's got a concubine. Later, he's going to have more wives, things like that. So I'm not just like trying to call out one thing and not another, but I am just trying to show us like there, there is this theme of disorder and uh, rebellion against God going on here. Now, do understand this. Uh, there were uh, plenty of places, even in ancient times, that were practicing homosexuality. So one of the difference between God's people and uh, the other nations of the world is that God's people see the way in which God has established order and they say, okay, so homosexuality, that's outside of the bounds of how God has created us to live if we are to worship him with our lives and our marriage and the way in which he has told us to live it out. That being said, um, when you look at these other communities, uh, these people outside of God's people practicing these things, you would almost expect to find it there to some extent because you're not expecting them to live up to God's standards. So, for example, uh, I think of when America was going through this whole conversation of if, uh, um, you know, homosexual marriage was going to become uh, a legal kind of binding union between people. For me, this wasn't like a huge conversation for myself because for me, I'm like, look, I don't expect the people of this world to live up to my understanding of marriage. I don't expect them to live by God's standards because they are not God's people. Uh, they they aren't uh, interested in living by God's standards. So why would I put on them that kind of weight? especially when it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to live by God's standards in the first place. Uh, If they don't have that Holy Spirit, 
how are they going to live up to that? Now, do I think that it would be good for them to uh, pursue the ways in which God has set the world up, regardless of whether they believe in him not, believe in him or not? Absolutely. Sure. Uh, and so to some extent, I've got a way out, you know, like when it comes to political conversations, how involved um, I need to be in in that. Um, but what you do see in the Bible is Old Testament and New Testament alike. In the Old Testament, you had places around practicing homosexuality, but God's people, when you read through the laws that they set in place, they understood based on God's order, this is not a way in which we can live, uh, in which we can practice out uh, any kind of feelings that we might have on uh, towards someone else of the same sex. So with that being said, um, you see that in the Old Testament, that though the rest of the world is going to practice this, we as God's people have chosen not to. Likewise, in the New Testament, you see the same thing. So the citizens of Israel in the Old Testament, God's people don't practice it. And the citizens of heaven in the New Testament, they're called to not practice it either, regardless of whether they have that kind of draw or not. So with that being said, um, you, you see this, this story being painted that's a little bit bigger uh, in which like Sodom and Gomorrah is not a, a city of people chasing after God. And so you might expect to find it there. Um, whereas Abraham, this would be off limits to, to him because he's following the God who says, that's not the way in which I created the world. Uh, that, that becomes a topic for me uh, that's important today because I realize when I come across people in this world who subscribe to another kind of mentality or a different kind of God, that they're not going to want to live up to the way in which uh, the one true God calls them to. And there's uh, not much I can do about that unless they want to follow that one true God. But then when it comes to uh, the people in the church in which, you know, I've felt this calling to kind of shepherd over and take care of, I have to understand from like my standpoint, this conviction that this is not the way we as Christians are called to live. And we need to have an understanding of, of the difference between what the world deems acceptable and, and what uh, uh, Jesus calls us uh, to practice that's acceptable to him. So I realize all that's not a popular message today, uh, but part of the reason, you know, I'm trying to say it explicitly is because I think the reason today that some scholars are trying to like look at this as like, oh, they just wanted to get to know them. What's your name? Where are you from? How you doing? That to me is like a modern spin to try to take something out of it um, that, that, people today are uncomfortable with, you know? But that's not the way in which the Bible paints it here. In fact, there's going to be a story, and this is important. Uh, there's a story later where God's people have their own Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? So there's like one tribe of Israel that shows up at a door and ends up uh, raping a woman all night long until she's dead. And this story is meant to be like a retelling of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, but now it's not found on the outside. Now it's found on the inside. And the guy who gives permission for this to happen is a Levite, which is like the priest of God's people. So like now there's this horrible twistedness 
among God's people in this particular story. So in that one, it's like, this isn't just like the world, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now it's like, hey, we're finding it in our own backyard among our own people. But what's important and the certain parallels I'm drawing right this moment is that story, you know, with it being paralleled back to Sodom and Gomorrah, that story is about sex, very clearly seen in the fact that this woman is raped. So if we're looking at parallels back to Sodom and Gomorrah, then we need to like say, well, we, we can't just strip it out of one passage, but then uh, ignore the fact that it exists in the parallels, which are trying to say what was happening originally. Sorry, uh, just to be more clear, Judges 19 is the story I'm referring to. Uh, and maybe just this quick blurb from Faith Life Study Bible. Uh, the account in Judges 19 draws on the episode of Sodom in Genesis 19. The two stories contain the same number of words and share common vocabulary. This story shows that Gibeah of Benjamin had become like Sodom. But again, uh, in the judge's story, it's very clearly rape. So even if you want to take the euphemism out of the original story of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you were to just look at other stories that are trying to retell the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, like there's no euphemism to, to take out here. It, it just like it's very clear what has happened in this story, really just as it's clear in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, this is just an important tip on Bible study in general, okay? So sometimes when we get uncomfortable with certain passages in the Bible, we try to do Bible study to the point that we try to pull out what we're uncomfortable with. Now, sometimes this is reasonable because it comes, sometimes you come across something, you're just like, ah, I, I don't know if this lines up with what I understand of God. I need to do deeper Bible understand, uh, deeper Bible study to understand this better. So like, for example, women in ministry, uh, people land on different subjects on this topic. In the Free Methodist Church, we believe that women can be called to ministry. And we don't believe that just because we have that conviction, but because when we read the Bible, we truly feel like that's what we're seeing. Uh, from, from Genesis, you know, women uh, and men both ruling the earth, but all the way into the New Testament. Because Paul, who talks Paul's the one people quote as saying like women can't be in ministry. But if you read just all of Paul's work, it's very clear he worked alongside women in ministry and and that one woman, Junia, was probably even an apostle. So like when you get into all these kind of passages, you're just like, mm. so I've gotta I've gotta work with God to try to understand how this works out because it feels sometimes like Paul may be saying, no, but when I look at everything Paul says, that's clearly what's not what's going on. So like that's an example. But when you get into the topic of homosexuality in the Bible, uh, it's always painted in a negative light anytime it comes up. And to try to pull it out of the Sodom and Gomorrah story for the sake of making ourselves more comfortable with it, um, it just doesn't uh, line up in the same way. But what may be helpful, and because this is a problem on the other side, there are a lot of people out there today who like anytime they see homosexuality, they're just like, ah, oh, it's going to burn. It's going to be torn down, rah, 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 you know, like, oh, this hurricane happened on this place because there was uh, a gay pride parade going on, rah, 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 rah. 
That's not the full story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is an improper use of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because as we've already seen, like this place is twisted beyond all means, and the prophets saw other uh, things that were twisted in them among social justice means and things like that. So it's not just like if there's something related to homosexuality that God is going to pour out judgment, because that's not the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a place, sure, of chaos, uh, even on the topic of sexuality, but it's also a place of chaos on like everything. As as we even saw last week, God's like, look, if there's a chance I can find some righteous people there, then I won't take it out. Almost as though God's hopeful it will turn around. Uh, and that homosexuality would have already been there. Yet even if God could find 10 righteous people, he wouldn't have destroyed it. So to just say, like, because something is related to homosexuality, God is going to just, like, bring massive judgment is a complete misunderstanding of the depth to which this place has fallen. Uh, even if you just look at the way in which homosexuality is practiced here, because those who 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 practice it today would be like, well, we would never do that, right? We would never all just gather around a house, force two guys to come out and rape them. That is a whole different level of of depravity and darkness that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So I want to be sure that while we're not stripping that topic out of the story, we're also not misapplying it to the way in which we understand the world and God's judgment and all kinds of things like that. So I know we just spent a long time on that. And honestly, if you don't know me, then I really fear that the way I just talked about all that came out <laughs> in the way that I would never want it to come out. So uh, do this. If you want to dive deeper into that subject, I have a podcast episode uh, that's very important to listen to in which I try to get in the whole topic uh, a little deeper, but more compassionately, more understandingly, and uh, even share some stories from my own life. Uh, so that episode is called relationships and it's in the uh season six on the book of matthew it's episode 29 in season six was released on june 16th so if you can access that still on our podcast go check that out as i do my best to cover everything i just talked about much more compassionately uh, because these are plenty of the people that uh, we reach in our community who we love very much just as we know god loves them we're not coming uh, trying to pronounce judgment, but to win them over with God's love and, and allow the conversation to go where the Spirit guides us as we continue down the road on that. But that being said, um, you know, I also look at what the Bible says as someone who loves uh, the Scriptures and wants to understand God better, and I'm doing my best to present it here um, in the way in which Sodom and Gomorrah kind of has me telling it. But at the same time, I, you know, just hope that it doesn't come across in a less compassionate light than I mean it to. Okay, so that was that topic. You knew we'd get into it because it's Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's uh, part of the story. Let's continue moving on in just a moment.
right, so these guys have asked Lot to bring out his uh, visitors to so that they can have sex with them. Uh, and now Lot, Lot, Lot continues to show oh, his questionable morality with where it goes from here. Because as we all read this today, we are just appalled by his next words. So let's go ahead and just kind of continue this, this uh, really horrific story. Uh, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Okay, so this is super appalling to us, right? Like, you just had two strangers enter your town. And now you, rather than let these people uh, have their way with them, you're willing to let these people have their way with your virgin daughters. Dude, that's messed up, right? Look, nothing I could ever say could ever make that not messed up. That's just straight up messed up. <laughs> However, I do want us to try to understand what's going through his mind because uh, there is a certain ancient kind of morality issue that he's running into here. So I've already talked about how important hospitality is in ancient times, right? Like hugely, hugely important. Uh, so when you, if you were to run into problems with taking care of the people that you are supposed to be hospitable to, um, that would reflect poorly on you because you don't treat people you're being hospitable to in, in negative ways. They are supposed to have the five-star review of their lives on your house on Google, okay? So when everybody goes to figure out how it went with you, it went well. It went beyond well. I mean, I think of it. These are two guys. He, he doesn't even know they're angels. He brings them to his house. He throws a feast and lets them stay with him. Like, again, that's not the way we think. But for him, he's trying to give these strangers a, a really great time. So what on earth? Why would he go from, from uh, wanting to treat these strangers so well to going so far beyond what's acceptable to make sure that their stay with him is a five-star review? that he would turn his daughters over to these men like this is this is dark this is messed up so so how do we get to this point uh even uh gordon winham uh, the way that he says it indeed his hospitality seems to go too far when he does not simply risk his own life by going out to face the mob alone but offers his daughters to appease their lust <laughs> who does that so Despite how messed up this is, let's talk about the moral enigma that he's facing. Uh, and I'm going to quote uh, the New American Commentary. Again, another great commentary on Genesis. K.A. Matthews, where he says that Lot sanctions the rape of his daughters indicates a moral compass gone awry. He places hospitality above the protection of his own children. It's difficult to conceive of such a custom that would put a guest's well-being over family. Such treatment by a father was despicable in the eyes of Israel. Forcing a daughter into prostitution is specifically forbidden in the Mosaic law. 
Leviticus 19.29. Yet offense against aliens was also grievous in the Mosaic tradition. Lot is caught in a web of the most vile of circumstances, and he opts for a way out that can never salvage any good. He surely offends his own sense of right behavior while attempting to save face with the strangers. For a moment, it is Sodom that has taken up residence in Lot's soul. So in other words, what Matthews is trying to say here is like he's caught in uh, this moral dilemma. Now, please understand, I totally agree this is not a moral dilemma, okay? And that there was probably some other options that, that could have been performed more um, at least heroically by standing up yourself rather than what he did. But uh, I mean, well, that's one takeaway, right? Again, we're questioning Lot's character. This man would do such a thing? That's messed up. Uh, but at the same time, the other thing that we're, we're trying to sort out is like, what is going through his mind right now? And it seems what's going through his mind is like, oh, it's so important that I take care of strangers. It's 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 a morally accepted uh, ex expectation of me. And and these people I've brought in my house and and they need to have the best time of their lives and I need to take care of them. And the, the last thing that would ever be good for me to do is to, to send them outside to be raped by my entire town. So that's like this huge moral dilemma in his mind. What's unfortunate is that he would place his daughters underneath that, right? Like, oh, my daughters, I'm not supposed to do that either, but what do I do? What do I do? And and he just shows like his moral compass. Again, as uh, Matthew said, his moral compass is just completely awry. Uh, rather than try to do something more heroically or even die trying to prevent any of this from happening, he just does something despicable. So we read this, and I think we need to understand like <laughs> just how messed up this is. You know, a lot of people read this, and they're like, oh, so I guess God's okay with this scenario because it's in the Bible. No, absolutely not. Remember, God actually pronounced judgment on this whole town because of how despicable it would become, let alone like that this would be a moral conundrum that anyone who lived in this town would have to face in the first place or make uh, such a, a poor decision as to, to how they were going to handle it. So when you read all of this just keep in mind like this this is all messed up none of this is supposed to be like a, a godly kind of thing or a godly kind of place and that includes lot lot seems to have been affected uh in his thinking as he has lived here so that being said uh let's continue forward uh they said stand back and they said this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they're upset that uh, that he's that Lot is trying to defend the men who are in there, and so they start uh, uh, calling him out. And uh, here's where you see some more, um, well, social justice problems. Like sojourners in the Bible uh, could often be like refugees, right? So sojourners were just people like they had nowhere to live. And God always wanted his people to be good and kind and loving towards sojourners and to take them in and take care of them. 
So in this case, uh, we see a social justice element that is lacking in, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we start to see where the prophets are accusing them of, of being so socially unjust. Because they're not taking, they don't care about Lot because he is a sojourner. In other words, Lot is not a Sodomite. He, he didn't live in this place. He moved to this place. And now they're not treating him uh, as, they're treating him as though he doesn't matter whatsoever to them because he's not one of them. He's just some sojourner, just some outsider, which God cares about. Uh, he's, he's, he's not a refugee in this story. He didn't move here to take refuge from something. But a refugee could be a sojourner by definition because a refugee may go to sojourn somewhere else. So whatever the case may be, this town is showing social injustice because Lot is not one of them and so they don't care about him. Uh, in fact, they're mad at him. The words that they use too really stand out to us given what we heard earlier, right? This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. So right here, he's judging them. Guys, what are you doing here trying to make such a, doing such a horrible atrocity uh, and putting me in this position? But even that, that comment like he's become the judge, that really sticks out based on just that memory that he's, Lot seems to work the wall, right? Uh, he seems to work in the, uh, sorry, verse one, he sits in the gate of Sodom, which led us to the possibility that he was doing judiciary things in town, uh, working with legalistic type, type things. So if we have that in mind, it becomes all the more interesting when they're like, he came to sojourn and yet now he's the judge. He's judging us right now. Uh, but maybe they're also implying he's also a judge in town or he works in a legal capacity in that sense, which still really makes us question this town. You know, like if, if what he is currently facing as a moral dilemma in Sodom and Gomorrah on this particular night, like if, if that's custom, then man, what, <laughs> what does Lot judge on a daily basis? Cause this is messed up. All right. Continuing. Uh, now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, and this time we're talking about the angels, because <laughs> the Bible in, in Genesis 19 is confusing. It keeps changing when they're called angels and called men. But it's not referring to, uh, to these rapists outside. The men here in this particular sentence are the angels. So the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Uh, okay, this is where things start to get very interesting for me. This, this story, we start to realize, is a mini version of the flood. Okay, so the flood was like this big catastrophe in which God poured out his judgment on the earth. In this particular story, again, we have another catastrophe in which God is pouring out his judgment. This time, it's not the whole earth, though. This time, it's uh, this, this city area of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, um, the reason that we can start to catch this is the words that are being used. They reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. That phrase right there is taking us back to the story of Noah. And it's going to sound like a strange analogy, but in the story of Noah, if we were to go to Genesis 8 and 9, let me just pull it up here. 
In Genesis 8 9, you have this expression. The dove found, you'll remember Noah sent a dove out to find land, uh, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. What did our passage just say a minute ago? Uh, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Okay, that expression there, the way that it's written, is trying to take us back to think of judgment, uh, the judgment that was poured out in uh, the story of, of the flood. Though in this case, uh, this particular reference is actually talking about uh, the family that was saved from the flood, right? Just as Noah and his family were saved, and Noah kind of took in a dove back inside uh, so is Lot's family about to be saved as the men take the uh, take Lot and bring him back in the house. And we're we're going to continue now to see these references to the story of the flood. So bear with me here. Uh, but first, uh, the angels and they struck with blindness the men who are at the entrance of the house, both small and great so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So, you know, there, somebody made a, uh, one, one uh, scholar made the, the possibility that uh, uh, they were blinded because the angels emitted a blinding light. I'm not sure how far that scholar particularly takes it. I only have that one little quote from him, uh, that Winham quotes from him. Uh, but that is one interesting possibility to think about. Simply because angels throughout uh, ancient literature are described as glowing beings. So, you know, you, you almost wonder, like, is it possible that they just, oh, glue, glue, is that a word? <laughs> Glowed to such an extent that, that it blinded them. Though I'm bound to say probably not, because we have other stories in the Bible where people are actually struck with blindness supernaturally, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be because anybody was glowing. For example, in Acts 13.8, Paul blinds a magician named Alimas. And uh, we know that Paul wasn't just glowing. So this guy struck with, got struck with blindness, and uh, that wasn't, uh, wasn't because of anything that Paul possessed. So I don't know why we have to really go there. And it really makes no difference. You're like, Jamin, I don't even care. That's fine. I get it. It's cool. Uh, just just wondering uh, but what is interesting though this word blindness that he got uh struck with blindness it only occurs in one other place which is second kings 618 and it's there uh when god at the prayer of elisha strikes the syrian army blind so again we we've got people going blind without it being necessarily anyone glowing so so no need to go through that. Winham would say, however, that uh, um, there's this possibility that we need to take this in some symbolic perspectives as well, which would line up with the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, because you see throughout the Bible that blindness sometimes represents like intellectual or spiritual blindness. And Sodom and Gomorrah is showing us that they are definitely spiritually blind, morally blind. They are just all completely off in their understanding of, of what it means to see at all. 
So with that being said, uh, that is another perhaps uh, overtone to the fact that they are now physically blind, representing the blindness that they carry in all these other ways. Okay, continuing. They struck the men with blindness who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. And that, that expression right there, bring them out of the place, um, this is kind of taking us back to an understanding of uh, the story of the flood. Because it wasn't just Noah that was saved. It was his family, the people connected to him. So right here, you've got just as Noah and his family were saved, uh, even though Noah is the only one who I think is explicitly said to be blameless for his time, it seems like the people who are connected to him get to survive as well because of his righteousness. In the same way, this is interesting, if you think about it this way, um, Lot, you really got to wonder, <laughs> you really got to wonder how righteous he truly is, right? But Abraham, who was righteous, is is uh, connected to Lot, and he was hoping that Lot would be spared. And here you have God sparing him regardless as to how righteous he may be in the first place so there is that question there but it's a it still shows us like abraham made a difference in god's uh god's sparing of this family we'll see that more as we continue uh but nonetheless we have a family being spared because of someone else uh so they uh the angels tell lot to like spare anyone connected to him for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the lord and the lord has sent us to destroy it and again we talked about that word outcry last week but that word carries a lot of that social injustice with it so that's part of where we're reading into the story of sodom and gomorrah uh, that word outcry is important to that uh, verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, and honestly, the way that that's communicated in the Hebrews, it's uncertain as to if they are married or if they're about to get married. The ESV obviously uh, goes with the interpretation that they are about to get married, um, uh, but we're a little unsure due to the translation on that point. But Lot goes to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So it's interesting. I, You know, I remember one commentary saying something like, shows you, you know, how holy he is, uh, uh, he, here he is suddenly talking about God destroying the city and, and they're like, Whoa, when did you become a God man? When, when did you start caring about Yahweh? Who maybe who even is Yahweh? Whatever the case may be. Suddenly you have Lot saying for the Lord, that's caps lock Lord. That's Yahweh is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So I don't know how coherent they are of the situation. Have they noticed that the whole town is outside getting ready to to rape these men and just what's going on? Are they coherent of that? In the end, I don't know. But uh, what you do see here is just like the mention of Yahweh causes them to uh, 
think he's jesting. And yes, that word jesting has roots in it in Hebrew. That makes us think back to the word laughing, which has been a part of the story of Abraham laughing when God told him he would have a son in his old age. Sarah laughing when she was told she would have a son in her old age. Isaac, who will be that son, and his name means laugh, as well as uh, um, Isaac later having a fight with Ishmael, so it seems, when Ishmael laughs at him. Like, that's there's a lot of connotation behind that word. And to be honest, I'm unsure as to <laughs> if there's some kind of symbolic meaning in it being used right here. But nonetheless, it's like, these guys hear about God and they laugh as well because they think that their father-in-law is, is jesting. So uh, maybe when we read that, we can still read into it like this mm, depravity that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, we finished another paragraph, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Man, it's just amazing to me. Again, you see the depravity here. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, let's go. How is that possible? The morning is coming right now and they haven't left? <laughs> I just don't get it. I mean, what's going on outside right now? Is there still a bunch of like blind people trying to break into the house like all the way through the night and and they're just still out there and you, you haven't left yet? You're waiting for the rest of the city who isn't blind, all the women to show up and try to figure out what's what's going on? Like, what, how, how, how did Lot take the whole night to figure this because you know earlier you had lot like pressing them strongly come to my house now you have the angels like urging him hey let's go let's get out of here and, and and he lingered is what verse 16 said he lingered so eventually these angels seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and they brought him out and set him outside the city so eventually you just had these angels make the call. All right, we, we got to spare them or leave them here. Let's go. Now, if you're like me, you've watched too many sci-fi movies and you kind of wonder, like, did they grab their hands and teleport outside the city? But there's no implication that that happened as cool as that would be. Very likely they just grabbed their hands and walked them out of the city. So sorry about that. Uh, anyways, uh, where were we? <laughs> I'm getting tired, man. I've been talking for a long time. My voice is going. Okay, so um, verse 17. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be slept swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Okay. All right. Hold up, Lot. What the heck, man? 
It's true. He probably thought early on that he was just taking care of some angels, right? I mean, of some human beings, right? But then he watched these human beings blind a mob of people. And surely at this point, like he's like, okay, these are not just typical guys. There's real judgment coming. And that's evidenced by the fact that he goes to his son-in-laws who thinks he's a joke for saying it. But he's like, we got to go. We're all going to die, right? So it's clear he is now conscious of what's going on. Yet still, despite the fact he's got angels staying with him, he, he lingers throughout the night. He's unwilling to go. When he finally does go, it's because the angels grab him by the hand and pull him out the door. And, and now they tell him somewhere to go to be safe. And he's like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Instead, he's like, how about over here? Look, do you think the angels were wrong? You know, like, hey, go up into those hills. <laughs> You'll be fine. Like, it wasn't like a devious lie as though they're like, go to those hills. Uh, we're just setting you up to die a different way. No, they had saved his life. And yet Lot is still like, mm, you guys don't know what you're doing. I got to go somewhere else. Still, God is gracious because after he's like, please let me go over to this place. Uh, one of the angels says, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. In other words, you can go to Zoar. I won't, I won't blow that one up along with Sodom and Gomorrah, which are about to face my judgment. Uh, so, like, there is, this, uh, there is this grace granted to him. Again, after a whole night of just dealing with Lot's thick-headedness, still, uh, they are gracious to him. And uh, it seems that the reason that he wants to go to Zoar, because it's a little place, you know, why does he make a big deal out of it being a little place? Uh, well, it seems that he wants to go there probably because, like, look, less people live there. It can't be quite so bad there, right? So let me go live in this place where things can't get so out of whack. But still, like, even this makes me question the the righteousness of, of Lot. I mean, think about it. If you were to go back to when we first heard of the place Zoar, you would note that in a war, Zoar teamed up with Sodom and Gomorrah to go fight against some other people. So, like, Zoar is a place that is has an alliance with Sodom and Gomorrah. Even if it's a smaller town, it seems to have been affected by Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Still, the angels are like, you can go there. It will be safe uh, to go there. But, uh, uh, but then finally, they're like, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Uh, and then it said, therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Uh, why does that matter? Because Zoar means little, and he just made a deal out of this place being little. It used to be called Bella when it teamed up with other uh, when it teamed up with Sodom and Gomorrah in the war, but now it's known as Zoar based on this whole story with with Lot. But he must have escaped there quickly, like the angels said, because and these angels said, like you know, we can't do anything till you arrive there. In other words, like we can't get rid of Sodom and Gomorrah; it'll be unsafe for you uh, until you have arrived there. Uh, so you got to get out of this area now. And it says, 
Uh, but the fact that they escaped there quickly, given like the time zone for the Middle East, um, there's barely half an hour between dawn and sunrise. And since the angels pulled them out at dawn, and since uh, Sodom is destroyed, it says the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So if the sun had risen on the earth and the angels had pulled him out at dawn, that's about 30 minutes to to make that trek. So he must, well, I mean, it might be further away, but he had to move in 30 minutes um, to get there safely. Okay, I know, we've been going and we're not done yet. There's more to say. So let's uh, take another break for a moment. back up in verse 23 the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground now that that sentence right there actually probably really stuck out to them because they would know their geographical area right so when people think of a specific area in their place that's just kind of like dry and uh, not doesn't produce good food anymore and things like that, they might be thinking back to like, oh, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Because you know, what we found in Genesis 13, 10, uh, was this verse. Lot lift, when Lot was choosing somewhere to go, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So that last part right there is in parentheses. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is that in parentheses? Well, we're seeing it right now. As, as we fast forward past the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what does it say? It says that God overthrew even what grew on the ground. So perhaps when they think of like a des desert area in in their geographical landscape they're thinking back to like uh it was god's judgment upon sodom and gomorrah that got rid of the um flowing river and and just all the great landscape that we had in that area so you know i know that's not super helpful but like if we knew like a desert in texas was because of some like ancient story <laughs> when we look at that desert we would think of it that way so try to get your mind in the ancient head when they look at this area and they remember what it used to be like the reason that it's not like that anymore what comes to their mind is they're looking upon a place in which god had brought his judgment at one point i'm not saying deserts are judged places by the way i'm just trying to make help you get in their shoes okay moving on verse 26 but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, when I was a kid and I heard this story, you know, you interpreted this whole story the way that you were as a kid. And so in my mind, 
I would always think of like, here's Lot's wife at one point, which by the way, we don't know if she was a sodomite or someone else. We, we just don't know. But we do see in this moment that she's the one who could not just focus on moving forward uh, and not looking back. She was the one who had to look back at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So that almost leaves the possibility, like maybe there was more deeper connection to her to that place because she she wanted to turn around to, to see, and since she did, uh, it ended up getting her killed. But whatever the case may be, this judgment that now reached her too um, did not turn her into a salt shaker like I thought as a kid. <laughs> Instead, it says a pillar of salt. Now, there is legend of, uh, of a particular pillar of salt, if you will, that people would liken back to this scenario. Uh, um, actually, here, I'm going to look at two. So, Winham says, It is often surmised that a strange rock formation near the Dead Sea gave rise to the story of Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt. While such a hypothesis cannot be disproved, the comment here obviously has a different purpose. By looking back, Lot's wife con contravened the instruction to not look back in verse 17. By disobeying a God-given instruction, she forfeited her God-offered salvation. So, uh, yeah, back in verse 17... If you remember, they were told not to look back anywhere in the valley, but she did. And she was either swept away as like salt dust, if you will, or possibly turned into like a pillar of salt, like a petrification type thing is the way that the ancient legend seems to look at it. So like the JPS commentary, Sarna Nahum, Nahum M. Sarna goes on to say, well, first he quotes uh, Bekhor Shore, who says, popular notion has her body turning into salt and still recognizable. Uh, and then he goes on to say, this idea must have been suggested by some grotesque salt rock formation in the vicinity of the Dead Sea. The pre-Christian book, The Wisdom of Solomon, 10.4 says, a pillar of salt still stands as a memorial to an unbelieving soul. And Josephus claims to have seen it in his day. The origin of the salt tradition must lie in the presence of Mount Sodom, Jebel Ustam, the base of which is a ridge of rock salt that extends for about five miles. So some had this like old, uh, you know, idea that like she's almost petrified like a statue or that there's a whole bunch of salt in one area that uh, she is a part of. Uh, but others would just go on to say that it's more like she was turned into like, like all of Sodom and Gomorrah and her being a part of it. Like it was all just kind of like turned into salt and soil and, and things like that. So whatever you want to do with that, chances are she wasn't, turn into a statue is my guess verse 27 and abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the lord and he looked down toward sodom and gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace so it was that when god destroyed the cities of the valley god remembered abraham and sent lot out of the midst of the overthrow 
when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. All right, now's a good time to pause and just say, now that we've looked at a lot of the story of Lot, he really doesn't fit in our mind of someone who is very righteous, right? Uh, I mean, there is some pretty messed up things and some expressions in there that were not super, mm, well, it didn't talk about him in lights that, that didn't at least make us question him a bit. In fact, when Abraham and Lot split, if you go back to that podcast episode, we saw during that time, like, Lot was doing some questionable things. He was edging towards Sodom and Gomorrah, which was already known as a wicked place. Uh, this was a really nice place as far as, like, the valley goes that he could have moved, and Abraham gave him, you know, choice where he wanted to go, and Abraham would go the other way. And Lot chose this place that was really nice looking. So there's some selfishness kind of seen there in, in, in some lights. And, you know, just we, we had some questions at that time. Now we have some more questions now. And now we see that he was spared from destruction. And that means to some extent we're thinking like he lines up with, uh, uh, with Abraham's request that God spare righteous people. Um, and so we're like, okay, so... Lot was righteous based on everything we just read. He was righteous. And there's a few things you can do with this. Uh, one, if you look back to the flood story, Noah is called blameless for his time. And that just really stands out to you to be like, okay, so if he was blameless for his time and at his time, the entire world destroyed, the entire world deserved to be destroyed Really, how blameless, how righteous do you have to be to stand out in that kind of kind of a world, right? Uh, so when you fast forward this story of Lot, you're like, okay, so Sodom and Gomorrah, this place was bad. And we just saw that on a very deep level. So if Lot was willing to listen to Yahweh kind of, and the angels still had to force him out, but they were willing, he was willing to believe that, that God was bringing judgment. I mean, really how, is that more righteous than the rest of the community? Is that considered righteousness on like a, a sliding scale of righteousness? So that, that stands out to you to some extent, but another thing to take into account is what we just read so it was then when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Here's a question. Would Lot have survived this if it wasn't for Abraham's intercession on his behalf? You know, I, I struggled with intercessory prayer for a long time in my life, uh, mostly because when I would get in a room with people who were doing intercessory prayer, it was just like everyone was always crying. <laughs> everyone was always sad. Uh, nobody seemed joyfully like pressing into God's presence or pursuing conversation with him. And it just became such like a, a, a mm, unhappy atmosphere to be in. So for, for like a long time in my life, I was like, I just don't really enjoy this kind of prayer. Uh, but now, uh, as we've done prayer group at, at our church, I've just seen God come so strongly 
as we get together and and we'll we'll pray in whatever way uh, seems necessary you know part of that is listening to god that is a form of prayer too talking to him listening to him venting to him uh feeling like he's giving you an idea as to what you need to do based on what he's saying you know all that is is great uh, but there truly is something to intercessory prayer that when we come before god and we ask him to help us with something or do something uh, uh, or or help someone else uh, and we're asking on their behalf that he go and do it. This story right here of Abraham is one of our earliest stories of intercessory prayer. Abraham comes before God and though he's asking God to spare the righteous, you know part of what's going through Abraham's mind is like, oh, my nephew's over there, please don't let him die. And then the Bible tells us that after Lot has been spared and Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. It doesn't say God remembered Lot. God remembered Abraham. Lot was spared because of Abraham's intercession. In the same way that... Noah's family was spared because God saw Noah to be blameless and righteous for his time. So with that being said, uh, that's just a really good example of intercessory prayer. Like it does do things. God does listen. And though sometimes we don't always get the response we want or we wonder if he's really hearing what we're saying, stories like that of, of Abraham show us that if that part was missing where Abraham had uh, interceded on Lot's behalf, would Lot have just died in that story? And would there have ever been uh, more to the story after that? These are questions that, you know, we have to ask. So intercessory prayer, it's important. All right, we get to the final part of our story, which continues to show us how messed up Sodom and Gomorrah was, believe it or not. Uh, but also really ties back in some intriguing ways to the story of the flood. So let's wrap it up in, in just a few seconds. Verse 30, now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in the cave with his two daughters. This is, I'm sorry, this is messed up. Lot made this huge deal about like, please don't send me to the hills, let me go live in Zoar. And now that he's in Zoar, it's like, I'm too afraid to live here, I'm going to go live in a cave. It's just very strange how this works out. Um... But yeah, it just shows us more of his personality. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. This is, sorry, this is way over the top, like, real extreme kind of bitterness to some extent, right? I mean, she's, how are we ever going to find a man now? You know, like as though all the men on the earth have been destroyed or something. I don't know. I guess I don't know her cultural time. Maybe there was something. Maybe people knew that they were from Sodom and Gomorrah, 
and they just didn't want to get close to them. And so all of the men that they maybe could have been set up with, they just couldn't be set up with. Uh, since Zoar was, you know, had been in alliance with Sodom and Gomorrah in the past, maybe we could go that route. I don't, I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, there seems to be some severe over-exaggeration here. Uh, the way Winham says it is her remark, there is no man can hardly be true, whether we translate area or world. Presumably, there were at least eligible husbands no farther away than Zoar. But this comment does give an insight into the girl's state of mind. She is desperate to marry, so she exaggerates the effects of the recent catastrophe. And so maybe with Winhan's comments, like we could think into like a socially... Well, let's think of her like in the way that we might paint her character, right? She's been through a tragedy. Uh, everyone she knows has passed away. Uh, she lost her mom on the way over. She lives in a cave. Uh, her life has kind of set her up for maybe a little bit of psychological madness or at least exaggeration may not be completely out of the picture. And plus, on top of that, what she's about to do, right? Look, we can't find anyone to marry, so let's have sex with our father and create children from him. Like, that right there screams help, right? That That's the decision that she comes to. So we're starting, you know, if you want to paint a caricature of her, these might be some kind of like, elements in her story that stand out to kind of create the brokenness that is about to happen because this is a distance she goes we'll never find a man to marry there's no men left let's just sleep with dad and create children from that this this is this is a strange route to go and one of the ways in which we might assume that she would go this route in her thinking is not only because of maybe psychological madness based on everything she's been through, but because she grew up in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you grow up in Sodom and Gomorrah and you see uh, just that brief glimpse of one night of what it looked like to live there, it suddenly doesn't become all that crazy to imagine her thinking being this far gone, right? Oh, we'll never find a husband. We'll have to sleep with our father. That, that to me, just shouts more about Sodom and Gomorrah than anything else. Our minds should be going back to like, is that how far gone that city was? That this is how you would think after, after moving out of it? Because that seems to her to be common sense in this conversation. Okay, so come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. And this is, again, where we see some very, very intriguing uh, calls back to the story of the flood. Remember, we've been seeing these, these connections, and these ones, this one's very interesting to me. After the flood, Noah gets really, really drunk, and... If you go back to our podcast episode, basically the interpretation I gave you that uh, I heard Michael, Bible scholar Michael S. Heiser come away with that I thought was just the best thing I've, best interpretation I've heard. 
The interpretation that I've heard is uh, Noah gets drunk and passes out in his tent. And then his son, Ham, comes and has sex with his mom. And then his mom gives birth to his son, which is is Canaan. Now, if you listen to that podcast episode, you know how we arrived at that. It's because it says uh, in Genesis 9.22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This could be a euphemism, because if we go into Leviticus, we see that uh, don't look upon your mother's nakedness, for your mother's nakedness is your father's nakedness. And there's just this this continual explanation in Leviticus of as to whose nakedness is whose nakedness. So there could be this possibility here that Ham, when he sees uh, the nakedness of his father, really he's looking upon the nakedness of his mother. And really that looking upon is more, could be a euphemism for having sex with his mother. Now, the other reason that this would make sense is because when Noah wakes up and heard about what his youngest son had done to him, is the way that it's expressed, he says, cursed be Canaan. Why would he curse Canaan? Like, Ham's the one who messed up. Well, Canaan is Ham's son. So, in this soap opera conspiracy theory, what if Ham's son Canaan is the son that he had with his mother? Now, I get it. That all sounds a little crazy, but given all of the explanation as to what happened in that passage, for me, it truly is the only explanation I've heard that accounts for all of the confusing aspects here. And here's why it makes even more sense in light of today's passage, which didn't even occur to me until I was working on this episode. If we've already seen these connections between Sodom and Gomorrah and between um, the story of the flood, between Noah being saved and between Lot being saved, what if the connections are still going here? Because what happens next is in the same way that Noah got drunk, now we have Lot getting drunk. And in the same way that we have this possibility that does make some sense about um Ham sleeping with his mother. What if now that story is continuing? It's a mirror image of what happened in the flood. Now we have Lot's daughters sleeping with him. And just as then Canaan would have been born out of that uh, um, uh, incest relationship, now you have Moab and Ben-Ami being born out of out of these ancestral relationships. So if we wanted further possible evidence to the fact that these connections, uh, sorry, that incest story is going on in the story of uh, Noah and Ham and his wife, then uh, just looking at the connections between these two stories helps to enforce that a little bit. So uh, he drinks wine. And then his daughters lie with him, and that is what goes on to to create their children. And the children that they're going to uh, give birth to, as I mentioned, it's Moab and Ben-Ami. They're going to be the fathers of the clans, the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites are going to some extent 
be reunited with uh, Israel in a deeper way down the road uh, in the book of Ruth, uh, because Ruth was a Moabite, and uh, Boaz, who was a part of Judah, he marries her, and then they go on to kind of give, uh, she goes on to be, what, the, the grandmother of David? Sorry, the, the great-grandmother of David. So once we get to the story of Ruth, you, you kind of see these connections between Abraham's line and Lot's line, kind of seeing a certain kind of restoration, or at least like a connection with each other, because David ends up being a pretty important part of the story of Israel and all that. So you interestingly, I guess one of the things that you might say out of that little nugget there is God has a way, even in this sin of an incestual relationship, after all this darkness that happens, God always has a way of, of redeeming things because out of that, eventually down the road, he's going to pull out David who is going to be one of the greatest Kings of, of who eventually Jesus is going to come from the line of David. So it's just it's always interesting to to watch how how God comes around to to bring redemption to the stories that we that we read of such great darkness happening in the Bible. Of course, uh, incest is wrong too. You know that's not the way that God designed things to be. This falls short of God's plan. Uh, I'm not saying that God ordained it to happen. Nothing like that. I'm just saying God has a way of of turning around uh, uh, things. Because even in uh, throughout the ancient Near East, incest uh, in this form between father and daughter, it was regarded as, as wrong. Though, uh, last maybe last comment, there is a lot of irony here. Uh, again, I'll quote Winham before we close it out. There is a pathetic irony. The angels have rescued Lot and his virgin daughters from the Sodom mob. Now they sacrifice their virginity and their father's honor when there is no actual danger. So again, we're brought back to the questionability of uh, Lot and his family. And uh, that's, uh, that is the more in-depth story of Sodom and Gomorrah, creating perhaps our longest podcast yet. So... I just wanted to cover it all. You usually only hear like little blips of it when you study it in like church or children's church or wherever, wherever it may come up. And so people are left to like, oh, were they really that bad of people? And like the more that we zoom in and we just cover it all at the same time, we're like, look, this place was falling apart. It was very twisted. And if God could have found righteousness there, he said that he wouldn't have destroyed it because he knew that it could come back around or, or that it wasn't time for it to experience judgment if there were enough righteous there. But in the end, that's not what he found. He still spared Lot and his family, uh, but uh, the place had completely become corrupt and fallen apart. And uh, Jesus, as well as the prophets and others, they will look back at Sodom and Gomorrah and use it as an example of, uh, of God's judgment that, that one day it will come. So the later Bible writers didn't see need to just like sweep this under the rug like it never happened or anything like that. They saw it as an important verse to capitalize upon 
to remind us that we need to pursue God and to avoid the kind of judgment that he's bringing, uh, recognizing that one day the day of judgment will come upon us all and we'll all have to face the throne and God's righteous judgment upon our lives. So I wrap up uh, completely this podcast with Jesus' words in Luke 17, 28. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus was talking about this this ultimate day of judgment that the Bible's been talking about uh, um, for for centuries, when, when God returns and everything is restored and put right, uh, it will happen in a moment, just like Sodom and Gomorrah happened. Life was going on normal. People were eating, drinking, all kinds of things, and normal social activities, and then suddenly judgment in a, the blink of an eye. And, and I really want to end on this because, man, I, I, last night, I think it was 11.30. I was already asleep, but I had just woken up for for a brief moment. And as I was trying to go back to bed, I was just on the brink of passing out when suddenly the loudest muffler of all time of, I think, a motorcycle probably going, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 miles per hour down my 25-mile-per-hour urban road. It just, it, it flew by in a moment, but it was so loud, it jolted me awake, and, like, my heart was beating. And I remember, I, I just looked at my wife, and I said, is that what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back? Like, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Just, like, in a moment, the trumpet blows, and just everything changes in, in that moment. And it's just crazy to me that that's... That's what I was thinking of at 11.30 in the morning because of a loud muffler right before I'm getting ready to do this podcast, in which that's kind of set forth as a, a possibility, uh, in which just in the same way life was normal, then God rained down judgment in a moment, unexpectedly, and everything changed. So, so we'll have to face that. And for some reason, that muffler brought me to that because I was just thinking of that final trumpet blowing in that moment. And, you know, my mind just like kept going with that for a little bit. I was like, man, the things that I've done and the things that I haven't done and the, and the things I do in my life that's just wasting time, that when I might sit before God's throne and be like, I thought I thought I had more time to, to do all this and to get it right and, and to, you know, do everything that I wanted to do for you. And so I was taking it easy and taking it slow. And, 
And now in a moment, the sound of a loud muffler is just all over and I can't do any of it anymore. And I, I put it all off and, and I'm sorry. That was the kind of uh, spiritual crisis I was having at 1130 at night last night. Uh, and I welcome you into that spiritual crisis as well to look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and recognize that one day we will face judgment collectively as all humanity, as Revelation tells us, uh, we all get brought before the throne to face a resurrection of sorts in which God judges us all. And some of us will be uh, taken into heaven and others of us will be thrown into the burning fire. And that's something that we all just need to, to remember. When, when that moment comes, it's, it's done. There's no more time to, to catch up on the ways in which we hope to serve God and get our lives together. So let's do it now. Uh, yeah, hope that's... Uh, <laughs> Hope that's an encouraging word. Nobody likes to talk about judgment. I get it. A uh, study came out some time ago about worship songs never sing on that topic anymore. So I get it. But at the same time, um, we need to embrace the whole Bible, not just pieces of it. And uh, we need to do it for our own sake uh, so that we're ready to. Okay, there's your podcast. I will catch you guys next time. <laughs>